Anybody ever taken a test? Yeah, I figure. I figure most of us have. Some of you homeschoolers may not have. I mean, right? I mean, that's a thing. Anyway, have you ever answered a question and you weren't sure if it was right or not? And you're like, Ugh. and like you color in the dot and then you erase it. You color in the dot and you erase it and you're going, oh. And like you can almost see the page that you studied with the answer on it and you're going, oh, I know this, I know this, I know this. It's this, it's this. And you color that same block back in, you're going, but C sounds right too. I know it's B, it's B. And you go up and you answer a few more questions and you come back to that one because you're like, ah, I know this, I know this but you don't know if you know it or not. Have you ever doubted yourself? Have you ever doubted somebody else? Have you ever doubted God? Huh? Yeah. Well, you're in pretty good company. First of all, with us, with each other, right? Because I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's somebody here today who has not doubted God. It's possible. Not probable, though. So if you have doubted God, how do you feel about doubting God? Probably feel like, I'm not a good Christian, or I'm a bad person, or... God must be really upset with me because how could I doubt Him? He's good to me. He's glorious and victorious in my life and I'm doubting Him. We're pretty good at beating ourselves up, aren't we? We've mastered the art of self-flagellation. We've mastered the art of making ourselves feel real bad because for whatever reason, that feels really good. Am I wrong? Huh? Everybody look at your neighbor and say, Pastor Jason's preaching really good this morning. Please don't do that. Not yet, anyway. I don't know what it is about us. We, we do kind of like to wallow in our guilt, especially about doubt, because we know what we know, and we should know it, and we should know it so well that we should never doubt it. But yet we doubt Well, I got good news for you this morning. Really good news. And it is couched in something that may not sound like good news. But so often that's how God works. If you would, turn your Bibles or whatever you do, turn your attention up here. We're going to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 15 this morning. Now that's pretty ambitious for me. Um, And we're going to cover it all, but we're not going to cover it all completely. We'll pick up some of it next week. We'll talk about that later. But if you would stand as we read Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, the very words of God this morning for you, church. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. God, we have proclaimed some marvelous things this morning as we sang. We have proclaimed some marvelous things as we came and partook of this table, your flesh and your blood, Jesus. And now we come to partake of miraculous things here in your word. And we trust your spirit to teach and instruct and build us up and tear us down and encourage us and convict us. Holy Spirit, we trust you to do what only you can do in our hearts. And if there be anyone here this morning who has not trusted Jesus as their Savior, who has not received the gift of eternal life, Holy Spirit, quicken them, breathe life into them, that their eternity may be settled here this morning. We ask for understanding and help in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Mm. Over the past couple of weeks for sure, we've had some pretty tough texts, haven't we? Jesus preparing His men to send them out and He's telling them not to fear persecution, but you're going to be persecuted. He's told them not to fear those who kill the body, Only, but you're going to face those who are going to kill your body. And he's been very straightforward with them. And he's also been very encouraging to them in the midst of all this. Now, at this point of our study, and as we approach Matthew 11, he has sent them out. The twelve have gone out, we suspect, more than likely, As is Jesus' case, usually it was two by two. So he probably sent out six teams of two and scattered them all through the region there. He told them not to go anywhere that related to the Gentiles. He told them not to go anywhere. Basically stay in that little area of Galilee and preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, as he sent them out, today we come to what he does after that. It says, when Jesus had finished... Instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So as he sends his men out, he too is continuing to go and teach and preach in the Galilean region as all of the disciples, except probably Judas Iscariot, were from the region of Galilee. So Jesus is going around there to teach and to preach in their cities. It would appear to be that there, there, is referring to the disciples because he just sent them out. So he's going around in the same region that he's been in. Now, we don't know, and I don't want to try to uh, 
place anything in the text that's not there. But I just wonder what kind of different feeling this was for Jesus, who had spent these past, I don't know, maybe year, maybe around that time, with these 12 men every day, day in, day out, day, night, waking, sleeping. And he sends them out and they're gone. And now it's him kind of flying solo in this opportunity. I just wonder how he felt what he was thinking. But he wasn't alone because everywhere Jesus went was a party, basically, because the crowds were always following him, always pressing in on him, always asking for his attention. And the fact that crowds still followed him is shown in verse 7, which we're going to get there, but we're going to, it'll take us a little while. We're going to work through kind of, not backwards, but we're going to look at verses 7 through 15 first today. And we're not going to cover all of them today. We'll read them, but we'll go back next week and cover some of them more in depth. And after we go through 7 through 15 today, then we're going to come back to verses 2 through 6. Okay, just so you know, when I, when I jump to verse 7, you don't go, wait a second, what happened to verses 2 through 6? We're coming back to them. So in what we just read, we saw that what follows Jesus sending out His men and then setting out alone is that some of John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and ask Him a question. But before we get to their question to Jesus from John, I want us to see what Jesus thought of John which is what we see in verses 7 through 15, and how John fits into the prophetic calendar of God. And I think that will make his question even more potent for our study today. So, verse 7 from verse 1. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So then as they went away, that's speaking of the disciples of John the Baptist who had come to ask Jesus the question that we'll look at when we get back there. Everybody's going, okay, why why are we jumping? Just stay with me, okay? So here in verse 7, Jesus has addressed their question, and now they're going away. And then Jesus began to speak to the crowds, again, showing that Jesus was always surrounded by crowds. He's speaking to the crowds, and He wants them to know some stuff about John. But first He asks them some questions about John, right? He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now that's, that's Hebrew poetic allegorical speaking. What's he saying here? What's that mean? Well, if you look back to Matthew chapter 3, watch this. This is talking about John. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So... As we look back at Matthew 3, we see John preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And when you think wilderness, don't think trees, don't think forest. Wilderness here in this context is desert. Okay, think dry, think sand, think tumbleweeds, okay? And do the little whistle thing that they do in Western movies. Yeah. So here is John out in the desert. Now people don't live in the desert. That's not where you live. 
But John's living out there. And not only is he living out there, he's preaching out there. Who's he preaching to? The tumbleweeds? The scorpions? No, it says that all of Judea, all the region, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan were going out to him. So out here in the desert where people aren't, John is and all these people are coming to him. And he's out there preaching the preparatory message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's not very dynamic. What if, what if I stood up here week after week and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I know that he was saying more than that, but that was his main message. And note there, verses 5 and 6, people from all over were coming out to John, being baptized by him and confessing their sins. John was, at that time, back in Matthew 3, the hottest spiritual show in town. And people were going to him out in the wilderness. Now, back in our passage today, Jesus asks the crowds, the very same ones who had went out to see John in the wilderness, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? When you were out there to see John, what were you expecting? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, what's that mean? He's asking, were you expecting John to be a weak pushover whose opinions and fortitude bent and swayed like a reed in the wind, who vacillated, who went back and forth, and who just wanted to please whoever was with him? Is that what you went out to see? Well, of course not. You went out to see a passionate person. You went out to the desert to see a man on fire, so to speak who was preaching a consistent message of your need to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This points to John's consistency, his sense of purpose that never waned in his public ministry. He was solid, he was stout, he was resolute. And the crowds knew that, and that's why they went out to him. Jesus goes on, verse 8. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Did you go out to see a fancy preacher in his fine clothes and his $1,500 sneakers who impressed people with his impeccable style and fashion? No. That's not who they went out to see. They went out to see, remember John 3, 4? Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he was eating bugs and honey. They weren't out there to see anything fancy. They weren't out there to see the newest fashions and styles. They weren't looking for soft clothing. No, that's not what they went out to see. He was wearing the rough clad garb of a pioneer. If you want soft clothing, go to the halls of power, into king's houses. That's where people wear soft clothing, silk. But John was not that man. John was rough as a cob and not given to the comforts of the world. He was a wild wilderness man. He was wild and free. Sorry. Two of y'all get that. He was apart from the world and its influences, not looking to be a policymaker or a head of state. His kingdom was one that was coming And that kingdom was established by God and not by man. So then what? Verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. You went out to the wilderness to this wild man, Jesus says, to see a prophet. 
A messenger sent from God to speak God's words to God's people. A thus saith the Lord type of person. You went out to hear God speak through a man. A wild, passionate man. So yes, Jesus says, John was a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Israel was proud of and well known for their prophets. Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so many more. And they did the work of God. They literally spoke the words of God. And they warned the people of God about God's judgment coming if they didn't repent. They were great men of God, these prophets were. But, Jesus says, John was more than a prophet. What's that mean? Well, Jesus answers that in the next two verses. First verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus says John was more than a prophet by showing that John was prophesied about by a prophet. He says, John is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So any of you providence folks familiar with that passage? You know where it came from? We went over it before we got into our Matthew series. It was the Italian prophet Malachi. 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 See, okay. The prophet Malachi spoke God's words and said this in Malachi 3 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's what Malachi said. Malachi was talking about John going before Jesus to prepare the way before Him. All the other prophets had spoken of a time and a place that they knew not of, of a time that was centuries or millennia or more away. Malachi himself was over 400 years before all of what was happening in Jesus' time, and his prophecy was about the one that would actually directly precede the Messiah's physical work on the earth. And Jesus, here on earth now, is saying that John is greater than a prophet, it seems, for one that he would see the fulfillment of his announcement. Whereas all the other Old Testament prophets really didn't get to. They saw some immediate fulfillment, but not the final fulfillment. So John was more than a prophet in that he would tell of what was to come and would see it with his own eyes. And he was to be the direct predecessor of the Messiah. He would not only tell about his coming, but would pave the way that the Messiah would travel and then see the Holy One walk that road with His very own eyes. That is a special office that no one but John occupied. Yes, and more than a prophet. But Jesus isn't done yet. Look at verse 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow. This guy is special. We're going to keep our focus on John. We're not really going to hit that last sentence today. We're going to hit it more next week. But look what Jesus just said about John. He says, Amen, truly. That's the word for truly. Amen, truly, I, Jesus, the Son of God, say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater... John the Baptist. Wow. 
Say what now? Now you want a glowing endorsement of somebody? How about this endorsement from the Son of God Himself? Here it is. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. R.C. Sproul said he used to trip up his seminary students by asking who the greatest prophet of the Old Testament was, and they'd say Isaiah, or he'd say, no, it was John the Baptist. And they're like, oh, that's not right. Well, the new covenant wasn't established until Jesus was in the upper room, right? So in the old covenant, John was the greatest prophet. Jesus just said that. There was nobody who was greater than John the Baptist. None greater than John the Baptist. Nobody born before John was as great as John. No human being born in the natural way was as great as John the Baptist. None. Wow. Now, I don't want to come off as overemphasizing this, but I surely want to make sure that we're on the same page here. John was a big deal. And Jesus thought very highly of him. Again, we'll address that second sentence next week. But for now, we're going to move on. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15 before we go back to 2 through 6. Jesus says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, I don't want to seem oblivious or seem like I'm skipping things, but we'll look more at verse 12 next week. But for today, Jesus makes it clear that there have been specific roles and purposes since John started his ministry. The beginning of John's ministry was a pivotal point in human history. From the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus says. And then in verse 13, he makes it clear that John is a time marker as well. For all the law, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John was a, 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 a stick, a, a point in the map. Bam, John. Up until John. He's showing here that John is the culmination. John is the pinnacle. John is the one who will be the last to point to all that those prior to him were pointing to. Nobody would function like John after John. And nobody before John had functioned like John. And then in verse 14, Jesus says clearly that John was Elijah who was to come, the precursor to the Messiah. Now the Jews' ears would have went, Boink! Now what now? What would you say? Because they were looking for Elijah. Because Malachi had said, Elijah's coming. We're going to... Yeah, yeah. Let me just read that. Malachi had said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi 4, 5, that's, that's the next to the last verse of the Old Testament. So then God goes silent for 400 years and the thing that the Jews are looking for more than anything is Elijah because he's going to precede the Messiah. And Jesus says clearly here, John is Elijah. And the Jews would have went, whoa, 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 whoa. Because that would have been Jesus saying, the Messiah is here. And Jesus is saying, I am He. And if you have ears to hear, you'll hear what I'm saying. John was the one who would take on the role of this prophesied 
Elijah, who was the prophet who would be sent before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now stop and think about that. John was the one before the one. That's who John was. And Jesus calls on His hearers to pay very pointed heed to this with that phrase, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We'll see this phrase more as we move through Matthew and we'll look at it more next week. But for now, can we be very clear in saying that Jesus was seeing John and and proclaiming John as very special? Very pointedly appointed by God. And that John was Jesus' very own forerunner whom Jesus had an incredibly high regard for. Are we clear on that? Okay. Well, with that set firmly in our minds, let's go back to verses 2 and 3. We'll start in verse 2. If that was together. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Huh. So some background here. We see here that John was in prison. If you don't know what's going on there as far as John being in prison, Herod, who was the quote-unquote king of Galilee, had John put in jail because John had told Herod that it wasn't right for Herod to be married to the woman whom Herod had taken from Herod's brother Philip. See this in Matthew 14, 3-4. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. John just did not care. John had no regard for your status. Herod, it's not right for you to take your brother's wife. Herod. So then at the time of our passage today, which we're looking at in Matthew 11, John had probably been in jail as much as a year. And when you think jail, don't think low security, tennis, lawyers, good meals. Think a hole in the ground. No sunlight. This man who had lived out in the wilderness all that time in a hole in the ground for a year or more. And here in prison, he heard about the works that Jesus was doing. He heard about Jesus healing, delivering, cleansing, preaching, teaching. And what was his reaction to these works? Well, it says that he sent word by his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who's to come? Or shall we look for another? Wait, what? This is John. This is John the Baptist. And he's scratching his head in jail saying, What's going on here? John in jail, hearing of Jesus' works, responds with doubt. Now, if this was John's first interaction with or first report of Jesus, I might could understand this doubt. But John, 
And we're not going to go to the verses. John had announced to his disciples as Jesus walked by one day prior, before he was in jail, he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. About Jesus. He had baptized Jesus and said, I need to be baptized by you. And he said that Jesus was the one who was coming after him whose sandals he wasn't worthy to unlatch because he baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he had seen the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove and God himself had told John that the one that he saw the Spirit descending on was the Messiah. John had said, he must increase and I must decrease. He knew Jesus was the one. And we've seen what Jesus thought of him, right? So then why this doubt? Why this question? I'll tell you why. Because John had been in jail for a year. Let me ask you. If you had given your whole life to preparing the way for Jesus and then ended up in jail losing hope of ever getting out, would you doubt it all? Would you start to wonder if maybe you made a mistake? Or would you start to wonder if maybe God made a mistake? How could this happen to me? How could God let this happen to me? Ever thought that in your life? Maybe right now? I would just ask you, put yourself in John's place. How would you feel? What would your response be? Praise God the Messiah is here. I'll just rot in jail and I'm fine with that. Let's be realistic. Of those born of women, none was greater than John the Baptist and John was struggling with that after being in a hole in the ground for a year. And so would you. And so would I. I don't have to be in a hole in the ground to doubt God. What, where would you send your disciples to? What would you have them ask? I got an awful funny feeling I would do just what John did. Because I do it every day of my life almost. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Do you just feel the emotion in that? Now we've seen Jesus absolutely skewer the religious folk of His day. He lambasted the scribes, the Pharisees, and even His own disciples for their lack of genuine faith. How will He respond to John's doubt here? Well, He answers John's question in a pretty peculiar way. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. To the question, that's Hebrews 11, that's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be Matthew 4 and 5. I'll read it for you. I'll go back to that. And Jesus answered them, John's disciples, for this question, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Are you the one or should we look for another? Well, of course, Jesus answers with Scripture. He tells John's disciples to go and tell John what they hear and see. And then he references some prophecies from Isaiah to talk about who he is and what he's doing. 
Isaiah 29, 18 says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5, Don read it this morning. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 61, 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus says, go tell John that what Isaiah said is coming true before your very eyes. And actually the passage that Don read this morning in Luke, it says he actually healed people in front of him and said, now go tell John what you've seen and heard today. He said, it's happening. Go tell John, I'm doing these things. I am the Messiah. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. Hallelujah. All messianic stuff. But wait just a second. Look at Isaiah 61.1 again. The brokenhearted are bound up. Okay, I can check that off. We talked about the blind seeing, the deaf hearing. Brokenhearted are bound up to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Wait just a second. Where's John again? He's in prison. But Jesus doesn't reference that part of the verse. Now does he? He talks about the blind seeing and the deaf are hearing and the poor having good news preached to them. And these fine Jewish men would be familiar with this passage. And they would know the context before it and after it. And they would know that this verse talks about prisoners being unbound and freedom to the captives. But Jesus doesn't say that. He conveniently leaves that part out. Go tell John, blind see, deaf hear, good news are preached to the poor. And they're going, you're going to bust them out. And he stops. Jesus could have referenced that part of the verse. Jesus could have got John out of prison. Contextually, one would think it would call for him to if you read this verse. But he leaves it out on purpose. He announces the work of the Messiah and these fine Jewish men would have been taught this messianic passage since before they could walk or talk. They would have known that part of the Messiah's work was to proclaim release to prisoners. And now a prisoner, the prisoner, was sending to Jesus and Jesus says, tell him I'm doing all this messianic stuff. But he doesn't say he's doing this messianic stuff about the people in jail. Tell John I'm doing messianic stuff for countless untold masses. But tell him I'm not busting him out of jail. Go tell him I'm showing my messiahship in foretold ways, but I'm not going to show it in the way that would benefit him the most. Go tell John that. And then he ends with this verbal atomic bomb. In Matthew eleven six, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Oh, this verse has crushed me all week long. 
Go tell John that yes, I am the Messiah and thousands are receiving the benefits of my ministry but do not offer him any hope that I'm going to help him out of his current situation. And then tell him, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I'm helping pretty much everybody else but you, John. And you're blessed, you're happy, like we saw in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. You're blessed, you're happy if you're not offended by me. If you're not offended by what I'm doing or not doing. John, you're blessed, you'll be happy if you don't get offended when I let you rot in jail. And you ultimately die there. And he will. John will die in jail after Herod's daughter dances for Herod and pleases Herod and Herod offers her anything up to half his kingdom and her mom says, ask Herod for John's head on a platter because she hated John with a vengeance, with a passion. And Herodias' daughter says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the axe swings, the head rolls and it's brought to her on a platter. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. This word offended is quite a word. Scandalizo. To offend, to put a stumbling block or impediment in the way upon which another may trip and fall, to offend, to entice to sin, to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey, to cause to fall away, to be offended in one. In other words, to see in another what I disapprove of and what hinders me from acknowledging his authority, to cause one to judge unfavorably or unjustly to another, since one who stumbles or whose foot gets entangled feels annoyed, to cause one displeasure at a thing, to make indignant to be displeased or indignant. John will be blessed if he doesn't distrust or desert Jesus, whom he should trust and obey. John will be happy if he doesn't fall away from following Jesus, even if it's only from his jail cell. John will be blessed if he does not judge Jesus unjustly or unfavorably. John will be blessed if he can see that God's plan, including John's imprisonment, his not being delivered, his ultimate beheading, that that plan is perfect and worthy of full acceptance and worship. Go tell John, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am showing my kingdom in all its glory. And he's blessed if he's not offended by me, not setting him free. Go tell John that. Go tell Jason that. Go tell the church that. Application? Three D's. Doubt, deliverance, and deity. Doubt, deliverance, and deity. First point is doubt. Anybody ever doubted? Back to where we started, right? 
John doubted. And there was not one born among women who was greater than John. Nobody occupied the special post in prophetic history that John occupied. And John doubted. Is it all right to doubt? Yes and no. We shouldn't doubt. And we do doubt. The question in this application point is, what do we do with our doubt? Internalize it? John could have just curled up in a fetal position and just rocked and rocked and rocked in that hole in the ground. But John had an idea. I'm going to go ask Jesus about my doubts. That sounds like a pretty good plan. Let me tell you something this morning. God is not afraid of your doubt. I would barely push the envelope to the point that God's not offended by your doubt. Be careful. God's not offended by your doubt if you bring it to Him. God, I see you blessing all these other people. I see so many people being helped and healed and delivered. What about me? Am I wrong? Am I in sin? Am I different? Are you mad at me? God's not afraid of that. Not a bit. It's the doubts that we don't bring to Him that we're not honest about that are offensive to God. That you harbor and you get bitter because you're not addressing them and they just hide themselves in your heart where the Word of God ought to be. Yeah, but what about my situation, God? Oh, better not say that. God will be mad at me. Say it. Bring it to Him. Don't try to hide and act like you don't think that, that you don't feel that. He knows it anyway. When fires burn all around me, I will praise you, O God. Yeah, right. When fires burn all around me, why is my stuff burning? What are you doing, God? This is me. Doubt should lead you to Jesus, not away from Him. Carry your doubt to Him. Look at John's response to his doubt today. He went directly to Jesus to ask his question as directly as he could. He sent his disciples and said, Go ask Jesus, what is up? Because look, I'm I'm in a hole in the ground, y'all. Go ask Him if this is right. If He is the one. I really was sure He was the one, but my situation is making me doubt whether He is the one or not. My situation, my circumstance is really, really hard and is not the plan that I drew up when I signed up to follow Jesus. Go make sure. Go ask Him because He knows. And we should do the same. We have been conditioned to deny our doubt. Deny your doubt. Feed your faith. No. Acknowledge your doubt and feed your faith as you take that doubt to God Himself and say, I need some help here because I can't figure this out. 
And I'm really starting to question you and wonder about you. God is not offended by that. Jesus showed no signs of being offended by what John brought to him today. Zero. Matter of fact, he praised him. He puffed him up. John is the greatest that's ever been born among women. Up until the law of the prophets, John, 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 John was this, John was that. We love John, John. Yay, John. And John's in jail. And John had doubts and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said, go tell John, I'm the one. And maybe it doesn't look like fixing his situation, but I'm the one. Take your doubt to Jesus. There was no rebuke from Jesus for John. That passage we looked at first was what Jesus said after John's doubting question. None greater than John. He's resolute. He's more than a prophet. I love this simple verse. and We've referenced it before, but doggone. Carry your doubts. Carry your fears. Carry your worries, your anxieties to God. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When I doubt, I bring that doubt to you. When I'm wavering, I bring that wavering to you. Everybody's quick to say, well, the Bible says we shouldn't fear. The Bible says we, oh, if you're afraid, it's bad. Don't fear. So we act like, okay, I won't fear then, even though I'm going, I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do with this. I can't be afraid because if I'm afraid, I'm bad. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Casting all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. 1 Peter 5 would say. Don't act like it's not there. Take it to Him. Face it full on. Face Him full on. And say, I am doubting. I'm doubting. God bless Thomas. Unless I put my hands in the scars, unless I place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, here you go. And we criticize him. Doubting Thomas with a sneer in our voice. Doubting Thomas. I'd never be like that. I would. Y'all could tell me all you want you saw Jesus. I didn't see him. And until I do, I'm not going to believe. I know what he said. I remember everything he said. And until I see it myself, I'm not going to believe it. And Jesus says, here I am. Touch away. Take your doubts to Jesus. Deliverance. So that means when I go and I take my doubts to Jesus, they're all going to go away. Jesus is going to fix everything because I'm His kid. I'm a king's kid, right? Everything is going to be better. Everything's going to be fixed. Everything's going to be made right because that's what the Messiah does, right? Ask John. When you get to heaven, ask John how that worked out for him. Well, I sent my disciples to Jesus. They came back and they said, Jesus is the Messiah. He's doing Messiah stuff. And, and, and he also said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And not too long after that, they cut my head off. John was never delivered out of jail. John took his doubts to Jesus. He did the right thing. A plus B equals C, right? God's deliverance does not always look like what we want it to look like. But now listen to me. God's deliverance always happens. And it happens in God's time. 
And it happens in God's way. God's deliverance for John was to separate his head from his body. You're like, oh. Could there maybe be another form of deliverance for me, maybe? Remember what Jesus said? We looked at it, I think it was a couple weeks ago. Do not fear those who can only kill the body. Our ultimate deliverance is when we put off this earthly body. And unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to put off this earthly body. Our spirits will leave our body. Our body will be dead. Our spirit will be in the presence of God. And our body will be awaiting resurrection one day to be glorified and reunited with our spirit. That's ultimate deliverance. And we're all going to experience that. No questions asked. Nobody's going to be translated into heaven in this building. I promise you. But God, couldn't you do something here and now? Couldn't you deliver me from this situation that I'm in right now? And I think the only answer I can give you is God might do that. And He might not. And blessed is He who is not offended by the way that I deliver him. You're happy. You're blessed. You are to be congratulated if you understand that no matter what God does, I'm going to worship him. That's true deliverance in the midst of your situation. What did the three Hebrew children say? Our God is able to deliver us from the fire, and even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your idol. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. This is at the end of his life. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So God's going to bust me out of jail. No. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. All those who were not offended by Him. God, please deliver me this way. No. Praise you. Let me tell you what, y'all. Christians are bulletproof. Throw me in the fire! Are you not afraid that your God won't deliver you? No. He can, but even if He doesn't, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. Because the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day my final best deliverance. And it's that that I'm living for. Habakkuk said it this way. Now Habakkuk, real quick, had gotten a word from God that the Assyrians were coming in and were going to wipe out the the nation of Israel. And they're unrighteous people. And Habakkuk said, God, how could you? How could you send the unrighteous Assyrians to come in and wipe us out? We're your people. And God said, that's what I'm going to do. And ultimately Habakkuk says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Whether the fields are full of food or not, whether the Assyrians come and wipe us out or not, I will, me, I will rejoice in the Lord. That's deliverance. And no situation, no circumstance in the world can take that from you. That's deliverance. Take your doubt to God and rejoice in Him because that's your deliverance. Knowing that He is doubt, deliverance, deity. God is not like us. He is not bound to your plan or your program. He is sworn to uphold His glory, His holiness, His kingdom. As for this God, the psalmist says, His way is perfect. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And you know what? We can't see the whole picture. Surely, God doesn't want me to be in jail. Tell John that. Tell Paul that. It seems like some of God's greatest people end up in jail. But I haven't done anything wrong. Neither have they. We can't see the whole picture. Why did God allow John to die in prison? I don't know. It's not some great fulfillment of some great prophecy. The one who precedes the Messiah will die in prison. It's not there. Why did he not outlive Jesus and see Jesus crucified? I don't know. And neither did John. But God did. God saw it on the prophetic calendar, marked it out. John's going to be in prison. He's going to lose his head here. And God knew it. And God allowed it to happen. Why? Because God is God. Stephen Curtis Chapman has a song called God is God. God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man, so I will never understand it all, for only God is God. You think you figured out everything God's doing? No, you have not. Because you're not God. And He is. And blessed are we if we're not offended by Him. Paul said it this way. We've only referenced this 6,1274 times. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. But God, my situation. And God says, I'm God. God, would you deliver me? Yeah. Will you deliver me this way? No. But God. I bless you. I praise you. And I'm not offended at what you're doing. I'm not going to fall away. I'm not going to try to discredit 
or distrust you because of what my eyes see. My heart knows. My spirit knows. Your Holy Spirit bears witness to my spirit that you are God and that the love of God has been shed abroad in my heart and that my eternity is set. And it's set by the firm, sovereign hand of God and nobody can take that from me. Nobody can take that from you. They can take your head off your shoulders, but do not fear the ones who can only kill the body. And don't be offended by whatever it is God is doing in your life. You've got doubts. You're looking for your deliverance. So you look to the deity, to God. Take your doubts to Him. Trust Him for your deliverance and know that He is God. Let's pray. God, we do not understand it all. We understand very little. But cement into our hearts and into our spirits, God, that You are God. And when our doubts arise, as they arise, we bring them to You. We cry out to You. We weep before You. We let our requests be made known to You with thanksgiving. And Your Word tells us that when we do that, the peace of God and the God of peace shall be with us. And that is our deliverance. God, we proclaim that You are God and we are not and that we only see a part of the picture that you're painting. Help us to not fix our eyes on the painting, but upon the painter. And may we trust you for our deliverance. Help us, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay neat with us if you can.